the face of constant change and disruption, we find ourselves in a world that is uncertain, incomprehensible, nonlinear, complex, brittle, and ambiguous. Welcome to Emerging Europe Talks, a podcast series dedicated to uncovering solutions that will empower Central and Eastern Europe and Central Asia. My goal? To foster resilience, strength, adaptability, prosperity, and growth in that exciting part of the world. I am Andrew Robel, your guide on this thrilling journey. Join me and let's turn disruption into opportunity and see how some of us are already doing it. Now, I have noticed that 78% of the podcast listeners have not yet hit the follow button. I would like to ask you a favor. If you enjoy the talks, please consider following the series. By doing so, you will not only help me expand the reach, but also gain access to even more inspiring guests and valuable content. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our podcast community. Today, I am joined by a fantastic guest calling in from Astana in Kazakhstan. Sayasat Nurbek is the Minister of Science and Higher Education in Kazakhstan. Minister Sayasat, welcome to Emerging Europe Talks. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for providing this opportunity to join the Emerging Europe and be part of that show and exchange opinions from our part of the world and from our region. Thank you. Fantastic. So uh, future-proof education was one of the topics at the Future of Emerging Europe Summit and Awards that Emerging Europe hosted last year in November in Brussels. We always talk about the future of both Emerging Europe and Central Asia at that event. And reinvention is a key future skill that is close to my heart because I am preparing to teach a course about reinvention at the university in Romania. But before we talk about future-proof education, I'd like to talk about the digital university model that you are working on. Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Well, the pandemic highlighted the importance of digital education and building enough digital infrastructure to provide our students, to provide our teachers with tools, with infrastructure, with enough space to go online, to combine and mix different digital instruments and tools, the so-called hybrid education, where you incorporate parts of Uh, of your classroom teaching, you incorporate digital, self-learning, online instruction, online classes as well. But then pandemic passed away and we are back (laughs) to reality. We are back to that traditional, conventional, face-to-face teaching and classroom teaching and instruction model. And we decided, well, well, we, we shouldn't stop. We shouldn't stop there. We should learn from the pandemic. We should... Uh, bulletproof our education so that if something else happens, we're ready for it. Because most of the, the education systems throughout the world, they just said, oh, it was a bad nightmare. It's over. We just go back to what we were doing before the pandemic. So our president now is focused so much on education and science And we have a seven-year strategy to transform our education. And digital is at core of that transformation. So what most of the universities learn to do and know how to do is to gather information. You look at the digital infrastructure of most of the universities and schools, 
you'd see they have some digital platforms. Mm -hmm. They know how to gather data. When you enter the university, you have a card, a student card, and it just gives information. Okay, the student is on the campus. You take a book. It makes a tick in information platform. Okay, the student have required or uh, has taken this particular book and so on and so forth. But that, but most of universities never learn how to use that data to analyze that data to make okay. decisions, to go on evidence-based decision making, on data-driven decision making. So there are a few really good examples. University of Reading in UK have learned, have introduced what they call student life tracks program. So every student has a mobile app. And the, the university ecosystem, digital ecosystem, gathers all this data and it provides a lot of analytics to the administration. And they are now making decisions based on all these big data, which is gathered from all these personal devices. For example, they make decisions, well, it's no use to have a library open between 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. because nobody goes there really. But to keep it open from... 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning, that's the heat. That's the spot because that's the rush hour. That's when everybody is in the library and so on and so forth. So at core of our digital university model, we're now piloting it at lo two local universities, is how to teach universities not only gather data, and collect that data, but also analyze that data using machine learning, using uh -huh. algorithms that's becoming a big deal now, and make data-driven decisions for administration, for faculty. And now we are switching more and more universities to what we call student journey map. So that when student comes to the campus, the digital campus ecosystem is tailored and personalized all the digital services of that university to that particular student's needs. For example, his mobile app would say, well, Mr. Arman, you have interest in archaeology. So at Thursday, 16 a.m., 16 p.m., a famous archaeologist will be giving a public lecture. So we are pushing that message mm -hmm. that might be of interest to you. So at, at a core, this is a next level of digital platforms. This is data-driven decision-making. This is personalizing of digital services and building student journey maps, faculty journey maps that would give extra tools, extra information to faculty, administration, and the students. And does that also translate into the curriculum? Sure. Now we have automated, most of our public universities have automated the scheduling and the curricula so that basically a student can truly personalize what we call individual learning trajectory, his learning experience. He can, there are core courses that everybody has to take and then the electives, the extra courses, he could use that platform to find uh, proper time suited to his needs, plan his time, have some extracurricular activities, have some extracurricular. And we have two tools to support that personal journey. One, we're running a pilot. The GPA, grade point average, is not calculated not only by his academic performance, 50% academic performance, 22, 25% research interest, conferences, seminars, papers, research activities, and 25, his social life, his volunteering, his community service. So that we use that tall stick and carrot to motivate 
student to, to give him incentives to engage more actively, not only in academic activities, but also in extracurricular activities, volunteering, social work, community service, and research activities. And two, we are signing up with platforms like Coursera. This year, we have made a deal with Coursera that 20,000 students at 25 of our regional universities will have full free access to Coursera platform with more than 11,000 best courses. And they could choose those courses as electives and they would be credited if they take that course and receive a certificate, they would be given a credit as an elective course. So that allows our students to choose among top courses. And we translate 600 about of these top courses in Kazakh and Russian languages so that we can have access more. And starting from next academic year, we're going to give that access to all of our faculty members and all of our students for free so that they could choose more courses and they could really build their personal trajectory. So I can see that we are getting closer and closer to that future-proof education model. If I ask you how you understand future-proof education, what would be the pillars of that sort of system for you? Well, the world is becoming increasingly volatile. You know, there was this definition of the world, VUCA world, yes. right? V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. They have now coined a new term for it, Andrew. It's not a VUCA world anymore. It's Bonnie world, which is brittle, anxious, nonlinear, and incomprehensible. So to summarize our new approach to higher education, I think the best way to put it would be this famous expression I've taken from martial arts. You know, I did martial arts when I was younger and my, all my kids now do karate, Kyokushin karate. So we cannot prepare our student to pick the place of the fight. When the fight starts, you can't say, well, look, it's not a proper place. Let's go back to the gym or the fight starts here. We yes. can't pick up the time of the fight. It started, you say, oh, well, I have a lunch. You know, can we do that after lunch? It started. You got a punch in the face. Yes. We can't choose the opponent, right? I mean, it could be two. It could be a whole bunch of the people. That's it. You can't say, oh, you're, you're too many. You're too many. I can't find you. You know, just one by one, please, please. You know, next one. It, so the only way we could prepare our student, and one of my martial arts instructors was always telling me this story, to fight anyone, anywhere, in any place, under any circumstances. So basically, we now have to teach our students, if we really want to make them future-proof, to adapt to any circumstances, any changes. So if you look at the way the traditional higher education was preparing students, uh, you know Matryoshka, right? Matryoshka, that Russian yes. doll, yeah, yeah. that yes. smaller one and the bigger one, and you put yes. the smaller ones and bigger ones. So imagine two-layer Matryoshka, okay, at core... There are hard skills. That's his engineering. That's his math. That's his uh, hardcore skills, hard skills, right? And the outer layer of that matryoshka is social skills, so-called soft skills, right? communications, teamwork, yeah. so on and so forth. Now, this matryoshka has changed. It has now three layers. If you want to have a future-proof student, it has to have three layers. At core, the inner, the, the, the core of that matryoshka, of that doll, would be so-called life skills or they call them existential skills. Mm -hmm. One, adaptability. 
So we have to teach our students, well, things have changed dramatically. AI is the new thing. We've been teaching you hard skills, but now everything has changed. Your hard skills are not at the top of the employer's table anymore. So you have to adapt. You have to change. And it has to be really quick. You don't have to do a lot of, it it, it is a psychological shock. Oh, I've been learning for four years and now out of the blue, I'm not available. I mean, like my skills are not that available or in high demand anymore. The second is resilience, you know, and it takes a lot of resilience, a lot of psychological resilience to be ready for this, what Alvin Toffler called future shock. Right. Because a lot of people, they just break. Okay, I'm out of job. I can't learn a new trade, a a new skill. That's it. That's end of my life. That's end of my career. So being resilient is part of that training nowadays. And third, I would call is learning ability is how to learn to learn. When Coursera came out, the number one course, which is still in top five of that Coursera top skills and top courses, is a course designed by that famous biologist, Bob Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky from University of Berkeley, which is how to learn, and Barbara Oakley, they two off co-authors of that course, how to learn to learn. So lifelong learning and really giving that skill of learning. How do you learn quickly? How do you use your old uh, previous experience, your old experience, your previous knowledge to build up and gain new knowledge? And there's a new word now, Andrew. You know, we know reskilling and upskilling. There's a new word now on the market, which is called dip skilling. You need to deep skill yourself because sometimes learning this new skill is quite painful. I mean, AI a lot of people now pretend to know about AI because yes. of social media. You know, it's a, a fear of missing out and fear of losing your face. You go, no, no, of course I know what AI is. Everybody knows. What is it then? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so it really is to, is to go back, as Alvin Toffler said, learn, relearn, right? And forget what you know. This is the most difficult part we have to teach to our students. So we have to teach them to learn constantly, lifelong learning. Then when we and unlearn, that's the formula, learn, relearn, unlearn, and yes. unlearn. So we have to teach them to learn constantly, constant learning, lifelong learning. We have to teach them to relearn because sometimes when things change dramatically, new technologies emerge, sometimes you have to relearn what you think you knew, Right. The new meaning of things, the algorithms, the new technology change substance. They change meaning to all things you think you knew. But the most difficult thing, Andrew, is to unlearn, is to unlearn what you have learned so far, what you think you've mastered already, and you think, oh, I know this. Now you have to unlearn this to learn new things because sometimes the change is so deep, it's so radical, it's so fundamental that all things you think you knew, you have to unlearn them to learn completely new things. So that's in essence a formula now we use in our higher education, how to teach our students to learn 
to relearn and unlearn. Because no matter how quick and no matter how much of knowledge and hard skills we give to our students, once they are out on the labor market, things keep changing and changing and acceleration, the pace of change is so quick, so dramatic. Just think about it. Last year, this time, November, we had ChatGPT and OpenAI made a revolution. Within a year, all these big boys, Googles and Amazons were in the race. Now we have Gemini, Gemini of Google. We have a whole bunch of new, more advanced algorithms. Within a year, there's hard skills have to change. So we need to really teach our students to adapt, to learn, constantly relearn what they've learned so far and unlearn certain things that would limit them from learning new things. Sayasad, thank you so much for saying that because this is exactly what I was talking about when talking about reinvention, which is a concept developed by a Kazakh national, actually, Nadia Zeshimbaeva, yes. who I've been working with in the Reinvention Academy. So thank you very much for saying that, because this is the future and this is the skill that we all need to learn. But in those circumstances, how do you teach the teachers? Because this is a challenge. Students is one thing, but then the teachers are responsible for that education, for helping them understand what the future might bring. So how do you teach the teachers? Thank you, thank you. And it is really a crucial question because in the end, no matter how technology has tried to change the education, no matter how much technology tried to shape new education, core of teaching hasn't changed. We're still back to uh, face-to-face teaching. We have a bunch of students in the classroom and we have the key element the fifth element, as we call it, from that famous Luc Besson's movie, The Teacher. Because in the end, it's up to him how he will orchestrate the whole process, how he will change. And there's a big problem with teaching nowadays because teachers have lost free monopolies, as we call them. The first monopoly is the knowledge monopoly. Back in the days, when you go to the school, the most knowledgeable person is the teacher, and you came to learn from him. Nowadays, you have Uncle Google. You have all the databases. You have all the knowledge at your fingertips. And teachers now have lost that monopoly. They're afraid of those kids, yes. right? Because, uh-oh, teacher, no, 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 you you, you have it wrong. wrong. Google says it's not 1967, not 1968, and da 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 So there's more knowledge now, and teachers have lost. The second monopoly is the moral monopoly. The teachers used to be those godlike creatures, like this extraterrestrial creatures for us. When I was a kid, I never thought teachers eat or go to toilet. They were like this (laughs) different race, right? And we had huge respect for them. Not anymore, because now kids know more, they learn more, they learn quicker. They're kids from rich families. They can go to places, they travel on their vacations, teachers never being or knew, knew about. Like, oh, Miss Polsky, I was in Ibiza last month. Do you know where is that? <laughs> oh, you know, so, so now kids know more and have more life experience sometimes than their teachers. They lost that moral kind of life experience monopoly. But the worst monopoly, which is lost or almost lost, is the monopoly of the attention. So back in the days, you go to the classroom, 
ring bells, doors close, and it is the space managed by the teacher. I have all the attention. I am ruling this space. I am the master of this space. But now we have TikToks, we have Instagram, we have all kinds of social apps who have very sophisticated methods. And there's this great documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which shows how sophisticated these engineers become and have a used billion dollar funded research and neuropsychology, psychiatry, neuroscience to grab the attention, to stick that attention to their screen time, because that's the new currency. The people's attention is new currency of these huge platforms. So now the teacher has to compete for that attention with these huge industries. And the content that teacher produces, his slides, his lecture plan, competes with the best content of Netflix, with best composers, best VFX specialists, best screenplay, and best offers. So my content as a teacher is now competing with huge industries. And most in most cases, I lose because my student is now more interested in his screen time and all the fun and entertainment and best content he can engage, he can enjoy, than my stale, not-so-vivid lecture. Well, today, good morning, students. Today's topic, I'm going to lose that. So I'm losing, the teachers are losing that war that huge competition. So now we have to retrain teachers in a very different ways. And there are two big programs we're now using. One, we are partnering with Best Finnish Finland institutions, like Finland, two leading pedagogical institutes, to reshape our curricula. So all of our pedagogical universities' curricula is radically changing. So we now teach teachers to use interactive media to learn new advancement in neurophysiology, in neuropsychology, how people think, how to deal with attention see deficiency syndrome, how to pace your lecture so that you keep the attention, how to use interactive media, how to use AI, how to use all these different tools available so that you still keep the attention, you fight for the attention of the kid, how to work with inclusive kids, because nowadays most of the kids, they're suffering from what we call attention deficiency syndrome. There's this great Indian movie called Tare Zameen Par, like stars on, on the sky, about this really brilliant kid who is suffering from attention deficiency syndrome, and how teacher, talented teacher, grabs his attention and uses and focuses his attention to bring best out of him. So we are repurposing our teachers and we are rethinking the role of the teacher in the classroom. He is not the monopolist anymore. He doesn't have the space monopoly, attention monopoly, moral monopoly, knowledge monopoly. So he has to be realistic about that. And he has to find new ways to engage the students. He has to be the, the pathfinder, the helper, the assistant, the partner of that kid anymore. He can't look at him, you know, uh, from up. He has to go down on his level and engage in horizontal communications. And stakeholder management is another big thing in our strategy because nowadays everybody's expert in education. 
everybody, including parents. And parents oh. come and and teach teachers how to deal with their kids. Oh, ah, you you know you you, you you green whore. You know nothing about education. You have no kids. And imagine that young teacher just fresh out of teachers academy. He has no family, no kids, and any no life experience, and he has to deal with his angry parents. So negotiations, stakeholder management, conflict resolution is big part of our training nowadays. Apart from newly updated curricula, new tools, interactive environment, and understanding better the neuropsychology of generation, which is now pretends to know more than the teachers themselves. Yeah, I think one one of the things that teachers should also be aware of is the fact that they can simply say that they don't know. It's no longer a must for them to know everything. I was in Kazakhstan in Astana last year, and uh, I had a chance to meet quite a few different startup founders. And uh, sometimes I was blown away by the ideas that they came up with and um, are developing. How do you see that sort of sphere, this entrepreneurial spirit developing in Kazakhstan? Do you see that young people need some extra skills or they are already becoming really entrepreneurial? Right. So it is a big thing in higher education now. People rethinking higher education. A lot of experts, a lot of governments. There are new experimental models of higher education, including entrepreneurship university. Mm -hmm. There's this great case of Minerva in Minerva University, which takes the bachelor and puts him in about six months in six different global cities, right? In uh, Taipei, uh, San Francisco. So student has to live and come up with an idea and make a project. He has to learn a new language, deal with investors, make up his business plan. So in the end, you have a, an interesting person who has lived in this four-year span in six global cities, learn how to deal with people, learn new languages, and uh, build a project, you know, sell something. So 100% employment, Andrew, 100%. Mm-hmm. they all employed by these big multinationals who love to have that really active person who knows, who's diverse, who knows his way around, knows how to talk people, speak several languages, has living experience in global cities, right? Mm -hmm. There's an interesting example, many, many experiments like this go on. So what we're trying to do in Kazakhstan, entrepreneurship is big. It's very important. Why? Less thanks to automation, thanks to digital technologies, there are less and less people who actually work in industries. Like you take Toyota, for example. 50 years ago, 85% of Toyota staff were engineers, mechanics, people working in industry. And about 15% were management people, sales and marketing people. The situation has changed thanks to automation. Now, 85% of them are marketing and sales representatives, social media management, (laughs) public relations, press relations type of people, lawyers, a lot of lawyers, and about 15% in engineering people. Because why all the ones are automated? Uh, Some of them 100% automated. There's like human-less production uh, industry plans, right? No humans out there. Now we have to, uh, we can't employ as many people as we used to employ 50 years ago, 30 years ago. So what do we do? What are we, all these people, what are we going to do? They've been trained as white collar people. They know they have some bachelor, they have some skills, they 
they have a diploma, most of all, right? So they have a right to claim a better paid job. So the only way to add a few strategies, well, out of few strategies, is one is to uh, train them as entrepreneurs so they could start their own businesses. They find those niches where they could uh, create companies, uh, provide services, create new jobs, important of all. So as we say, gig economy, post-industrial economy, fourth industrial revolution will cut jobs in industries, but will create more jobs and services in a human-to-human interaction areas, right? So one part of our strategy is to have several universities, and we experiment with that, entrepreneurial universities. Mm-hmm. So we have handpicked 15 universities. We call them centers of academic excellence. We give them more funding so that they could build their venture ecosystem. They could build their startups. They could build their accelerator programs. They could engage with local industries. And one of that particular universities has a diploma program as a startup. So basically, a student is trained four years to graduate with his own company, basically. So he has to learn things like marketing and sales, investor relations, uh, setting up his company, legal information, HR policies. So basically, his diploma defense is not a report, but a, a startup pitch, right? He says, well, in four years, I've learned this and that. I've built my own company. I have so much investments. and Thank you very much for your service. Off I go to found my own company. But we will see how it goes, this experiment. It's in, in our regional universities in Pavlodar State University. Uh, but we now try to engage more students, especially in third and fourth year, to have more entrepreneurial things, to build things. Even in engineering universities, we introduced what we call maker spaces. Like the latest lake maker space was in electric cars. And I just opened it at two, last week. It's in east of Kazakhstan in the city of Eskimen. So we built a maker space called Lubang Ganfan, Lubang Workshop. It's in partnership with a, a Chinese university. So people learn, engineers learn how to deal with electric cars, how to maintain them, how to diagnose them, how to sell them, how to bring new things, how to set up workshops that would provide repairs and maintenance for electric cars and things like that. So even technical people, engineering people should learn how to do business or have some basic understanding of entrepreneurship. Because as I said, we can't create more jobs easily. Every year, even large economies, creating new jobs is becoming very expensive. It's not like this the old, the New Deal uh, back a century ago. You build a large highway, you create hundreds of thousands of job places. Not anymore. Automation took a toll. Remember that famous case in the U.S. when President Trump said, well, we're going to bring back the coal mine workers' jobs, right? And one of his, <clears throat> sorry, Mr. Bro, we can't because it's all automated. We can't bring hundreds of thousands of coal miners back. It is not possible. Well, we're going to help them you know, to do something else. So it's we not going to work. The entrepreneurship will save the world, so to speak, because creating new services is creating new jobs. And finding these niches where large companies, you know, it's better outsource these things or just they don't want to deal with that will be that extra space on labor market, extra niches on labor market that would, in the end, create jobs for these graduates and help other graduates to create jobs.
I know that science is also part of your portfolio. So how important is it to invest in science and invest in scientists? Because the results might come in very soon if you do that. And I know that in, uh, at the University of, of um, Sadbayev, there have been some interesting developments related to selenium, right? Yes, yes. Well, there is this very famous concept of middle powers. Yeah, back after World War II and Cold War, there were superpowers like USSR and, then, and then now China, emerging China, yeah. United States of America. And then there were middle powers, so smaller countries, solid in their you know, science and technology and innovation. They couldn't directly compete with global powers, but they had some niche, what they call niche diplomacy, they had some, say, a moral rights, like in, in human rights, environment, technology. And so Canada, a good example. Lately, South Korea is the great example of soft power, of a middle power, right? Because they have a huge GDP, about $2 trillion. Their soft power is growing, the K-pop, BTS. The latest Oscar movies, The Parasites, the first foreign movie to get the best picture award at Oscars was, was Korean movies, Parasites. Yeah. So they are, they are not supposed to influence, have any influence being with such a small country, but through technology, through Kia, through Samsung, through science and a huge investments in innovation, they are, they have more say than they are supposed to. Yes. So Kazakhstan's strategy is that of a middle power. We believe, and it's ambitious strategy, we can become a true middle power and we are making our strategy towards it. You look at our president's foreign diplomacy, the foreign policy just published an article called Tokayev Made Neutrality an Art. How can he host so many uh, different powerful figures, global leaders of very, who are working in very opposite directions, you know, but he's managing to deal with them all. That is a true trait of, of a middle power. Middle corridor, another big thing, if you look at the a one belt, a belt and Road Initiative. You know how Chinese call uh, Central Asia, and especially Kazakhstan in that strategy, buckle of the belt. We're right in the middle and we have crucial in providing smooth logistics and transportation, connecting these big, huge markets of Southeast Asia and Europe. So science and technology is crucial in our strategy as well, because I'll just give you one example to highlight this. There's this big German-Swedish company, consortia, called Svevind. They're producing green hydrogen, which is now kind of becoming big alternative in energy, hydrogen. A lot of car-producing companies, Japanese, German, they say, well, forget about electric cars. The next big thing is hydrogen cars. And Toyota was out in the market with second edition of Toyota Mirai, which made world Guinness record on a single hydrogen cell. This car ran 1,350 kilometers, which is an, an absolute record in autonomy and fuel autonomy. So now this Svevin, despite the decision the German government made to locate them in North America, North Africa, I'm sorry, they said, well, that will be the best spot to produce green hydrogen. They said, no, 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 no. We're going to Kazakhstan. We're going to west of Kazakhstan to a city of Aktau near the big seaport. It has plenty of sun. It has plenty of wind because of the Caspian Sea, of that moussons, uh, breezes. We're going to build a huge 50 billion euro investment green hydrogen production plant right there, right in the middle 
of that middle corridor. Because if we can produce that green hydrogen, we can export it to South, South Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, to Japan, big consumer, China is becoming a big computer, and to Europe. We're right in the middle. We're right in the middle. So we want to save our transportation costs and we're going to save our production costs. We, we will be in the middle and we'll be selling it to anyone who has huge demand for this new green hydrogen. So that is, in essence, and they said, but we need a lot of people. We need a lot of trained engineers to do that. And we need a lot of science, meteorology, machine learning, because there's this smart system that calculate the wind and so on and so forth. We need a lot of engineers and material science people because you can't transport hydrogen. You need to bond it with ammonia so that you can transport it. We're right on top of that. So we built a consortia with four leading German institutions. That's Berlin Technica, Technical University, Wildau, Darmstadt, and Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. And our local university launched a German Kazakh Sustainable Engineering Institute. We've already admitted about 60 students. We started with bachelor programs. So it's two plus one plus one program, two years in Kazakh institution, one year in that one of these German partner institutions, and one year at industry immersion. So it'll be this big research and academic hub to support this big project. And Earth, rare earth metals are becoming critical. You know how they call rare earth metals nowadays, Andrew? We call them critical metals. So President Macron was here, the French president, and all these delegations were here because China now, they've limited exports of rare earth metals. So Kazakhstan is now becoming this new hub for rare, for critical metals. And what we did, we now employ our old Soviet science in metallurgy in mining, and we, we bring new partners, like we brought in German mining institutions, we brought Canadian mining institutions, there are Chinese, Harriet Watt opened a big branch in west of Kazakhstan, we have Russian, British, American University of Arizona, for the very first time, an American university opened up a branch up north in the city of Petropavlovsk to bring new technology. So selenium is that interesting metal which comes out, it's, Kazakhstan is one of the big holders yes. of that selenium. It is used in electronics, it's used in space industry, but the biggest consumer is actually Xerix company. If you look at the cartridge, you know, that cartridge within a Xerix, yes. it has this greenish, shiny out layer, which is made of selenium. And now we've learned how to refine selenium and take the pure selenium 99.5. Now we're aiming 99.9 extra pure selenium to become one of the uh, largest exporters of that selenium. So science and technology help a lot of these middle powers like South Korea, like Australia, like Canada, like Turkey to become true middle power. So our strategy is to focus on research, change our R&D policy. We're changing that old Soviet approach focused on closed research institutions to what we call an open science model, where we focus on universities to become, on research intensive universities to become new centers of innovation, of applied research. And we are using our partnerships. We're bringing universities like City University of Hong Kong. We just signed a deal. They'll be opening up an AI, artificial intelligence program with our leading technical university. We, uh, we just opened up a school of uh, AI, of artificial intelligence, with Soltech, Civil National University of Science and Technology of South Korea. And they'll be providing 
investing, co-investing and building up this school. So become a middle power, a true middle power with advanced R&D policy, innovative higher education, uh, network of research intensive universities, using our transit potential, our energy potential, our alternative energy potential, our mining potential to have that hub research, academic transportation hub right in the middle of the continent is new vision of Kazakhstan, which our president is now pressing on. And we have a strategy to fulfill that ambition and that strategy. So I said, fingers crossed for that strategy. I'm really looking forward to going back to Kazakhstan. I loved it last year when I was there. So really looking forward to coming back. And thank you so much for finding the time to talk to me because the discussion was particularly fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. And we're looking forward to hosting you in Kazakhstan again.